0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 49 and Khoi and Urlam Afrikaner Uprising of 1799 is in view. Keep in mind at this point in South African history, Afrikaners are the mixed race band of former Khoi slaves and Namakwa, living in the northern Hantam and at times raiding Namaqua land. When we left off last episode, things were sliding towards war as the settlers of the Hantam and the Khoi were thrown into chaos. In this episode, we'll also pick up the story further east in the Zürfeld, where Kunrad, the base, had taken to living amongst the Khoi and Bastos and eventually the Amat Koza. His fortunes had been mixed, but changed after 1795, when Kosa chiefing maker, who had recently defeated his uncle in Llambe, decided he must acquire a white advisor to help him obtain guns and horses. The Kosa knew that these were now crucial in any battle against their own people and the settlers drifting in from the south. They were symbols of authority. He chose the multilingual Kunrad, the base for the role, and then to cement the alliance, Engweke gave his own mother to the Boer. Reports said she was not unhappy with the arrangement. At the same time, Martinus Prinzler of the Zurfeld remained the unreconciled leader of the 1795 settler rebellion at Graf Reinet, and he believed the British garrison in the Cape was now weakened. He began to mobilise Trekboers for another raid on the Amatosa, a to seize cattle he believed had never been returned after the War of 1793. But to do so, he had to create a situation where the burghers would be willing to turn out for military duty on commando, so to speak. We'll return to his next moves later in the podcast, because the Khoi were also now about to rise up further north along the Orange River. 1799 was a momentous year in southern African history, as you're going to hear because not only did the Khoi rise up and the Boers, further north the proto-Zulu groups of the Mtetwa and Duanwe were also growing their power quickly. Back to the northern Cape then. Remember last episode, Landros Andris Krai in the Hantam had been recalled by British Governor General Dundas, who had also called for his arrest for corruption. In January 1799, Veldkornet van der Westhuizen of the Little Namakko land was in a state of considerable agitation. The Feldkornet called for assistance in quelling a koi uprising that had been partly fomented by the Czech boys themselves as they raided local clans without reason. Eventually, the lawlessness of this frontier was going to backfire, and that's what happened at this point. It always takes two to tango. Van der Westhuisen had asked for support, but the non-appearance of reinforcements and Feldwachters from other districts was not reassuring. A small rebel Urlam group of around 50 men with 15 guns, appeared one day to parley with him and another feldkornet by the name of Jan Engelbrecht. But these rebels flatly refused to talk to trekboers, who were now distrusted. Van der Vestes managed to convince three Urlams, boy Kamis, his brother Kubido Kamis, and Klaas Knucha, to meet him in eight days at the Kombach to return guns and livestock recently stolen from the trekboers. The Koi, in exchange, would be allowed to keep three guns for self-defense against the San, but Barend Hujeman, who had apparently killed Hendrik Hivas, the Knecht, refused to discuss further terms. Other Urlams alongside also refused to negotiate. Still, after the obligatory eight days, the Kamis' Klaas Knoehe, Link's name Gerrit and a handful of other Urlam leaders arrived at the Kombach. It's a mountain range that stretches east to west along the border of what is now the Northern and Western Cape. It lies north of the Mordenas Karu and is part of the escarpment between the Rocheveld and Neuverveld mountain ranges. The Komsbach Pass is just over 1,700 meters high and is quite a sight if you ever travel through the region. So the Urlams who decided to make the trip handed over only five firearms, six horses and a poultry, 14 cattle and about the same number of sheep. They then told von der Westhuisen that the rest of the livestock had got lost. Not being a member of the Do-You-Think-I-Was-Born-Yesterday tribe, van de Westhuisen was obviously upset because he'd already heard rumours to the contrary. Luckily for both sets of negotiators, Cornelius Koch then arrived at that very moment and convinced the Urlams to listen to van der who Koch said had negotiated honestly up to that point. It was only now that the root cause of the uprising was formally noted and written down. The Koi's statement was enclosed by van der Westhuisen in his next letter back to the governor back in Cape Town. First, the koi were against their names being recorded. Secondly, they had been told that the English arrival at the camp meant they'd be drafted in to build roads to link the farms. One of the Urrams, Gerrit Kwankwa, also related how Andri's Krai had threatened him, saying all koi were going to be forcibly removed to over the mountain towards the Orange River, in other words. Then there was the rumour amongst the Khoi that refusing to allow their names to be listed by the new authority would lead to their execution. A few other allegations were jotted down specifically about the Trek threatening to turn all Khoi into their slaves. Possibly the most damaging point in the letter was the comment by Bastard leader Adam Koch, who explained how Weltwachtmeister Krai had told him to leave the Orange River region or he'd be hunted down and killed. For a law-abiding man like Cork, this was the last straw. So there it was, both the white farmers and the Koi, Koi inhabitants of the little Namakwa were feeling insecure, to put it mildly. Luckily for Van Vestesen, Cork dismissed Krai's threats out of hand and continued negotiating. Then both parties separated with Van Vestesen promising to consider the Urlam demands. But a fortnight later in February, the commando promised by the Cape authorities eventually arrived. It consisted of Feldwachtmeisters Gideon van Sale, Gerrit Smit and Ernst Wolffart. They had managed to gather 18 trekboers to the commando and two Bastards as well as seven Koikoi, and it was now 68 men strong. That was a powerful group, most were armed and there were also about a dozen more cattle drivers to add to the overall effect on the Feld. They set forth to enforce law and order on the Little Namakwa land. On 24th of February 1799, contact was made with a group of San who had joined the rebellious Namakba and Ulam rebels. Two were shot dead and the rest were followed to a cliff at the Buffels River. There, a much larger gang had been hold up for some time. One of the Tregboers, by the name of Gerrit Uvis, the elder, approached Van de Vestasen, suggesting he could possibly negotiate with this large group to end the standoff peacefully. He may have been courageous, but his Christian virtues had blinded him to the fact that his opponents were in no mood to talk. Two other Feldbach who were present, von Sale and Schmidt, stood back and said nothing as von der Verssen decided what to do. Because of the San amongst the gang, the Trinkbuerers were afraid to approach. Had there only been the Makpa or Koi, it would have led to a very different ending. Wubis, for some reason, believed he could negotiate with the San. The very people, his people, had been ethnically cleansing with great success all the way across the Cape. They had not forgotten nor forgiven the Dutch for the murder of their families over a century. Uvis though, knew that amongst the group was a young girl called Faki, who he thought was more reasonable and asked to speak to the Namakwa youngster. Finally in the afternoon, Van der Westezen relented and allowed Uvis to approach the cliff, and Faki came out to talk. Four others went with him but had stayed back with the horses. As Urvis put the proposals of peace to Faki, sand suddenly appeared from behind him in the rocks. One ran up and stabbed Urvis in the back with an assegai, a spear, the point entering above the hip and coming out near his navel. The four men and Urvis managed to make their way to the horses and ride back to the commander. There Urvis was treated and lingered painfully all day on the 26th of February but died on the 27th. As he passed, he is reported to have told Van der Vestesen that he forgave his murderer because he was a Christian, pitied his poor wife and children, and had sought peace. What must be, must be, he said, my time has come. Uvi's death meant the peace moves were halted, at least initially. Those involved, though, could not be hunted down because they had moved further north of the Orange after the incident. A handful of Koi Koi rebels did surrender now, but the uprising continued. Eventually, most sued for peace. The main rebels, who were identified as a mixture of Khoi, San and Bastart, disappeared into the area beyond the orange. And so the rebellion in Namakwa appeared to be over and the situation for the Trekkers immediately improved. Young Englishman John Barrow toured the area a little later in 1799 and said the inhabitants were now secure and also noted that the Namakwa were in a state of almost complete servitude. It would take another decade or so, he said, and they'd all be serfs on farms. He noted something else, which South Africa battles with to this day. than the Macla Nation, said Barrow, writing in his diary of 1799, were now destructively addicted to brandy and could no longer hunt game like the ancestors. They were willing to exchange a single sheep for a bottle of alcohol. And yet complete peace had not been achieved. There were a few more outbreaks of violence through 1799. For example, in August, Landrost van der Riet of Stellenbosch was informed of another uprising of the Namaqua, which was put down by van der Westhuizen and a party of armed burghers. Earlier, in June, groups of San had attacked the Namaqua who then took refuge for the farmer by the name of Adrian van Niekoek. But these incidents faded by year-end. By 1800, some Treckboers had been left destitute, including Jasper Clutie, who ended up married and living with what the Tulbach Landrost called a bastard hodentot. Plutti had many children with her and lived in a mat hut amongst the Urlams, then asked for permission to farm further west, down Kosis River. He thus became the founder of the present-day community of the Komachaste. Later, in the 20th century, an alternative narrative developed about their formative years. As I've pointed out, by then, many white South Africans had taken to denying the African past as apartheid tightened its social noose around the throats of citizens. Tradition then had it that Jasper Kluter, the younger, Jasper's one son, had three white half-brothers who despised him on account of his mixed descent and banished him from the Kamisbach. Much later in South African history, these people would have to fight tooth and nail to keep their land as white farmers encroached through the coming centuries. While the situation in Namakwa land settled down as the century turned, in the middle orange, the Afrikaner gang, who we've heard about last episode, was going full tilt. By May 1799, they had begun a series of raids on farms in the Huntum, and were stealing powder, shot, livestock and provisions. Their first victims were Jacobus Engelbrecht and his Knecht, Bastard Jan They were murdered and their muskets and two wagons seized along with 1,200 sheep and 300 cattle. That was a fortune back in seventeen ninety nine. Next, the Afrikaners killed a Koikoi servant of Chat Tutoi and stole several wagons. Then, hit the farm of the widow of Peter Taron, stealing two thousand five hundred sheep and goats, one hundred and forty six cattle, and three horses. Next came the family of Johannes Boerter, who were attacked and robbed while traveling with all their stock and possessions. They lost everything except the clothes in which they stood, and were lucky to survive with their lives. By now, the Afrikaner gang was 100 strong and included many San who were thirsty for revenge. A commander sent to deal with the Afrikaners then ran out of steam and the gang returned to the Orange River rich in treasure. Meanwhile, the word went out in the Cape, more powder and shot needed in the hunter. British Governor Dundas was running out of options. Landros van der Riet had described class Afrikaner as the widely known scoundrel and murderer who has long deserved death for the various crimes he has committed. Plans were laid for a large commando to head into the Orange to find this gang and Dundas was considering placing a large price of dead or alive on Afrikaner's head. But he was also in two minds. The Dutch farmers had played him for a fool once before and he wasn't about to be caught out again supporting a commando that was actually just a trekboer raiding party. This time, obviously, it wasn't, but you can understand his hesitation. Still, Pandarit prevailed and pulled together a huge commander of 137 men who went after the Afrikaners in August and September 1799. But they ran out of water and raided a few sand kraals instead, then went home. The danger from the Afrikaner gang was growing, and the longer they remained on the loose, the more damage they were doing to the English administration. But Governor Dundas had other things on his mind right now. You see, the trekboers of Graf Reinet in the Zürfeld were back to their wily ways. Martinus Prinsler was a loose cannon and he was fixing for a fight with the English. By now, the British had asserted their authority in the Zürfeld and arrested the troublesome Adrian van de for fraud. In January 1799, Prinsloo and a party of 30 armed men intercepted the escort taking Van de to Cape Town to stand trial and released him. Off into the felt they galloped with Van de deciding he'd throw in his lot with Prinsloo and the Trekburg gangsters, or rebels. Their nomenclature, of course, depends on who you support. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, after all. The Czech Boer rebels were now in contact with the giant who was now married to Ngweka's mother, Kunrat the base. Prince Lu tried to convince the base to convince Ngika to attack the British. This, of course, is another of many examples you're going to hear of the Boers or the British using black tribes against each other while publicly pretending they weren't. They were willing to put aside their growing racial prejudice and ally themselves with Africans. While the base thought about these things, Prinsler and von Jaswald played a double cross. They headed off to Burgers living in the Zürfeldt and told these Treckboers that the base would use his influence on Nwinka to turn the Oza loose on the farms unless they joined in the rebellion. Talk about double crossing, triple crossing and just plain deviousness. These trekboers made Dingaan look like a rank beginner when it came to lies, distortion and disinformation. So what was their plan then? What did the rebels want? Aside from setting the whole district into an uproar, they didn't have a plan. What were the next steps? Ek weet nie, they said. They wanted to besiege the Drosti and Graf Reinet, that symbol of English control, and threaten to hang Landros Bresler. But what exactly their political aim was, they didn't have a cooking clue. Back in Cape Town, Dundas was chewing his quill in nervous thought. The reason... Was not just that the Afrikaner gang was wreaking havoc in the hunter beyond, nor the shirty Trikpurs and the Republican Berets declaring rebellion in Graf Reinet. No, he now had to deal with something far more serious, at least in his book the French. Yes, the traditional enemy was back. While Dundas immediately suspended the supply of all ammunition to the eastern frontier and cut the road between Graf Reinet and Cape Town, he received word that a French frigate was lurking off the coast. The French, based at that incredibly beautiful Indian Ocean Ile de France, a.k.a. Mauritius, had sent a frigate called Prudente to try and land troops and ammunition at Algoa Bay, destined for the Graf Reinet rebels. The English captured the frigate and Dundas sighed with some relief. Now all he had to worry about was 200 perennially disruptive farmers in Graf Reinet and not the French army and navy. So Dundas duly dispatched Brigadier General Thomas Pakenham Vandeleur to Algoa Bay by ship instead of overland. The force included the much feared British dragoons or light cavalry. These were usually deployed for screening, reconnaissance, and pursuit, and not for full frontal attack, particularly against trekboers who were armed with muskets and were crack shots. The dragoons were feared, however, well trained, dressed in heavily braided, tight blue jackets, blue breeches, and elegant Talton helmets, they were a sight when they hove into view. The helmets were made of metal and leather with a bearskin crest. They carried curved sabres and a short musket or carbine with a barrel 66 centimetres long. That was suspended from a belt over the left shoulder and hung muzzle down at the rider's right thigh. All well and good, thought the Boers, European troops fighting white Trek Boers. But what is this? Vandalia also commanded a detachment of 50 men of the Hottentot Corps, which the British assumed would intimidate the rebels. All the Tregbours saw was a racial affront at that stage. The bigoted order of the Renet frontier was now in full force. It was the presence on the frontier of Khoi and mixed-race soldiers in British uniforms that was going to have an additional and entirely unanticipated but inflammatory consequence. The British had always used races against other races. It was part of the fun of running an empire across the world. Indians fought Arabs. Europeans and Arabs fought Indians. Latinos fought the French. West Indians, Europeans and Indians fought the Dutch. Arabs, Indians and Europeans fought the Dutch and the French. And now mixed race Cape soldiers were fighting the Dutch once more. So what? Thought the British. Ach, near Skander, said the Burgers. And thus, as they say, the die was cast, which would grow into more than a century of fighting, where Boers would complain to the British about their use of black troops. It just wasn't cricket, you know. The Burgers had begun to differentiate themselves as a race on the felt. They were threatened by this majority. Their very existence as a people could be overrun at any moment by these amatosa, these koi, these these non-whites. And they still hadn't met the biggest threat, the Zulu. Interesting times lay ahead, no doubt about it. Well, look at the time we have to finish off for this episode. Next, we'll hear about what happens to the rebels of Hraf Reinet, and we'll take a swing around further northeast to probe what was going on in what would become known as Zululand. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. You can email me through the website desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, salani alli. Thank you.